edition of the CCUR Ratings Radar podcast. Uh, my name is Richard Lander and I'm joined as usual this week by Frank, Nisha and Angus. Uh, before we get going, a quick plug for our previous edition where we mentioned Alt Usits star manager David Tovey. Well, no sooner did we draw attention to Mr Tovey's AAA rated prowess than his employer BlackRock announces it is reopening one of his funds after being soft closed for 18 months. Is that a coincidence? I will leave you to decide. So on to this week, and the big story of the week, certainly in Europe, was uh, the ECB committing to a further 600 billion euros of uh, bond purchases. Uh, Christine Lagarde announced this yesterday, quick swipe of a credit card, and all of a sudden the ECB is able to foot up, I think it's 1.3 trillion of European bonds. Uh, So... On that point, we're going to listen to uh, Nisha talking about the euro corporate bond sector because I imagine uh, on the back of such generosity, doing rather well. Yeah, so so far, so as you mentioned, um, ECB have bought government bonds and high quality corporate debt, which will obviously help lower cost of borrowing for countries, businesses and household. But the main um, beneficiaries of this money so far has been Italy and also Spain. And surprisingly, Germany is um, also in there. And I say surprisingly because there hasn't been much uptake from France. Um, We'll see how that pans out. But um, just around 11 billion of that 1.3 trillion has actually gone into corporate bonds, which isn't that much if you think about it in the grand scheme of things. Um, The uptake has been really slow for corporates. I'm sure that figure will rise, but um, at the moment it is quite small from what I was anticipating anyway. So I wanted to highlight two managers in the Euro corporate bond space um, that have real consistent performance and have really proven that consistency is key during this pandemic. And some countries, you know, will return to some kind of normality and on the back of that with the stimulus going through as well, these funds should you know, benefit from it as well. So the first manager I wanted to highlight is um, Gaurav Chatley. Um, he manages the East Spring European Investment Grade Bond Fund and the MNG European Credit um, Investment Fund. Now, he's held the coveted AAA rating for the last 20 months, which just shows off his investment credentials. Now, he first got his rating back in February 2013, and he has held one ever since. So that's a testament to his investment skills. Now, on the MNG Credit Fund, he does have Germany in there, financials such as Rabobank, Credit Agricole, and BNP Paribas in his top 10, as well as Ford Motor credit company. Now, these are longer term plays. So there were no real knee jerk reactions coming from him, you know, during this sell off, which, you know, has really bode well for him. Now, his fund is more skewed towards um, triple B rated bonds and A rated, which is around the higher risk end of investment grade. Now, we've seen this with a lot of investment grade managers, you know, they need to search for that high yield and still stick to the investment grade strategy. But what that has meant is that, you know, they've been pushed into these higher risk areas. So around 48% of his portfolio is actually in triple B. But even though there's a risk of these defaulting, but I think with the ESB, well, ECB stimulus coming through, you know, these bonds will be shored up. So we won't see that kind of activity, hopefully in these 
Gorov's fund anyway, because I think he does go for high quality investment grade. So the risk of defaults are pretty low in there. And that should, you know, bode well for him. Okay, cool. Uh, so, uh, Angus, you want to come in here? Yeah, I, I was just interested to hear what Nisha was saying about um, corporate bonds. A couple of our recent virtual events we've done uh, with fund managers presenting, we've had several high yield managers presenting to fund selectors, and they've been talking a lot about the opportunities they see doesn't seem that long ago that we were hearing asset, manage, asset management CEOs talking in quite scary terms about defaults and the level of defaults that we might expect. And also, I do remember back in March, the CIOs, the private bank CIOs at our investment leaders roundtable, talking about uh, the, the areas they were really worried about uh, in terms of default. They were saying how uh, they would be steering clear of anything to do with the U.S. consumer. Uh, that was an area that really worried them a lot. So I guess what that all means is that for corporate bond managers, this is a real stock-picking environment. They've got to pick the right credits and the right uh, instruments. They really, they, they, their skills are really going to be tested here. And, and I, I would guess if all of that is true, if that background is accurate, you'd be looking at an environment where going forward, you get quite a wide dispersion of returns across that spectrum of corporate bond managers. Yeah, absolutely. They're spot on. I think um, what, one thing that managers have learned from the financial crisis in 2008 is to really look at these um, balance sheets, you know, what the issues are, what they're investing in, in these corporate bonds. And even though, you know, there's a high area, almost going into high yields in these triple B races, they know what they're doing. They know, you know, that these can be shored up they can, you know, take an advantage of the ECB in these cases. Obviously, you know, the ECB is not buying high yield. So it is in the investment grade market that, you know, it's all happening. And if these managers can keep consistent in what they're doing now, you know, they should, you know, come out of this okay. So more important than ever to pick the right managers. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Right. The wider picture here is that just having the backup of the ECB in Europe and the Fed in the US saying we're going to support corporate bond market has has resulted in you know as it seems fairly little purchases on both sides of the pond but just their confidence that you know, they're going to be all right has meant that inflows have been absolutely massive in the past couple of months yeah now i've spoken to a couple of uh, us bond managers in recent weeks and they said you know what saw everything collapse in march was not so much a yeah i mean obviously some businesses have been really badly hit and their uh, you know their bonds are worth less on on uh, financial grounds but what it mostly was at the height of the crisis was a liquidity crisis you know bond uh, dealers into dealer brokers were simply switching off their phones or switching off the machines and refusing to trade at any price once the fed came in uh, then everything got back to normal pretty quickly uh, i'm surprised actually by those stats that news was saying that uh you know, the ECB's only been, uh, hasn't bought many corporate bonds, presumably because they're, you know, they're looking down the back of the sofa to buy every Italian government bond, and pretty soon they will have bought everyone and put it in their, put it in their war chest. Yeah, I, I mean, at some also... point, they're going to run out of government bonds to buy, and they're exactly. going to have to buy corporate bonds. Yeah, I think the take-up as well from the corporates hasn't been that great either. I think, um, for example, just to put on um, Frank's point, um, the US flows to the, you know, 
to June the 3rd, the week of um, June the 3rd, there's been record flows into US funds, um, especially into corporate bonds and high yield. Now this should, you know, allow for more issuance, you know, coming from these companies because the amount of, you know, money going into these funds. So 15.6 billion went into investment grade and high yield bonds in the US just in the week ending, you know, June the 3rd, which is a record. Amazon has managed to finance the cheapest ever corporate debt, 0.4% uh, a couple of days ago. But uh, there's a great interview on uh, Mark Kiesel on our websites that uh, Chris slowly did, where he talks about investment grade corporates jumping 20% from, from the Nadir. I mean, that's sensational returns for what are investment grade, not even high yield. So fairly boring, fairly boring. Yeah. Yeah, I think the action, again, talking to these US managers, is you know, they saw far more potential at the high yield end of things that the implied default rates were way overstating things. And the same thing you know, happened in 2008, where actually people forget now that the, that the dip was much, much greater than it has been in the last few weeks. You go look at the charts of, of one of the high the high yield ETFs and it was horrendous what happened in 2008 and it took a lot longer to reopen because there just wasn't this massive action there was some action but uh, nothing on the scale of what you've what you've seen here so no, there's um Muzi Kadan uh, one of the top um, fund selectors also mentioned that it took 18 months for any kind of stimulus to come you know in 2008 and now it took 18 days. So that just shows you the difference and, you know, the tools that they do have now to shore up, you know, the economy. The willingness yeah. to use it as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, everyone says the, the US is divided and obviously events of the last week are showing that. Uh, but we forget that, you know, 2008 was, was at the cusp of an election. Uh, and while Obama, you know, it changed hands from Republican to Obama, there was, it was still pretty febrile in, in, in Congress. And, you know, didn't you have Hank Paulson go down on his knees to Nancy Pelosi to say, please, you've got to pass this or, or we'll go bankrupt or the country will go bankrupt. And, you know, you had Lehman Brothers as well. I mean, it was uh, as bad as this crisis seems, you know, it was pretty bad then. And, and people tend, people have short memories, except people like us have been around, you know, longer than most or something like that. Cool. Okay. Uh, let's move on to Frank because you're turning Japanese this week. Is that right? Is that right? Yeah. So uh, not quite. I, I want to talk about Japanese equities. Uh, a lot of investors actually have been uh, betting against Japanese equities for the past sort of six months, uh, if futures markets be, to be believed. That's changed slightly, but ultimately they've got burned. You know, in equity market terms, it's had a good crisis. Uh, Japanese equities are down about 2% since global equity market peak in mid-Feb. Uh, for context, S&P 500, 7% off, global equities, 8%. Europe, though, much worse. It's the sort of epicenter of the crisis, down 12%. UK equities off 14%. So there's a big sort of variation going on. Japan's done well. There are some question marks as to how much you've actually participated in that, if you invested, because the yen has weakened uh, by about 8% over the last month against virtually every other currency because investors, it's a safe haven currency, they've started to feel more confident, we're coming out of the worst of it, at least for now. Um, it's a massively under allocated place, Japanese equities. It's 8% of the MSCI World Index. And there are great managers in this space uh, that have delivered impressive returns, consistently outperformed the market. 
There may still be some weakening of the yen to come, which could hurt your returns unless you're yen hedged. Uh, but the flip side is that people, you know, will rush back into the yen if we enter a second wave, a second peak. You don't really want to think about it, but it is, it does have that status. So, you know, by investing in the, the country, you can participate in some equity market upside, also potentially hedge against future sell-offs. Asia has also done, as we all know, a much better job of containing the pandemic than, uh, than we have outside of that, than we have in Europe, certainly. And both the funds I'm going to highlight are well above their mid-February peak. So the first uh, set of managers I want to talk about is uh, Richard Kay and Makoto Agami, Comguest Growth Japan Fund. They've got the highest risk-adjusted returns in the sector over the past three years. Uh, Richard Kay, interesting chap. Uh, he's an Englishman, speaks fluent Japanese, based in Tokyo, works for a French company. Uh, there's a lot, lot going on there. Growth manager, high conviction, buy and hold. It's just 36 stocks in the portfolio, active share of 84%. Consistently rated since October 2014. AAA rated at the moment. The fund is up 13% since mid-February, global equity market peak. So doing very well. It's got a variety of stocks that have been faring uh, particularly well during the pandemic. It's got GMO Payment Gateway, which is the country's largest cashless payment service. Um, you, obviously, it's overweight tech. It's overweight healthcare. It's a common theme among uh, our recent things. But this is a fund that's been doing well before the pandemic. And this has just sort of accelerated that. Uh, the, the second uh, manager fund I want to highlight is Sophia Lee on the first date, Japan. She's got the second highest risk-adjusted returns in the sector, actually tops the sector for total returns over the past year. She's a young manager, only failed to receive one rating since first becoming eligible in uh, May 2018. Started running First States, it's quite interesting, First States' first Japanese equity fund, given their presence in Asian equities, that's surprising, so that was in 2015. Done a great job. It's co-managed by the group's uh, veteran manager, Martin Lau, uh, but given the amount of mandates he's on, uh, we're giving the impression she's very much in control of the fund. And it's up 16% since mid-February to yesterday. It's an interesting strategy. High conviction again, it's about 50, 50 stocks, similar high active share. She's looking for companies which are, which are trying to tap into the kind of new model of Japanese enterprise. It's in line with Abe's vision for a modern Japan, you know, away from the hierarchical male-dominated companies of the past to forward-thinking, flexible firms which in theory should be more adaptable to change and you don't get much more changeable than, than what we're experiencing at the moment. And uh, she's done an amazing job, up over 100% since launch in yen terms. That's four times the topics index in that period. Uh, as a result of her sort of overarching investment philosophy, the fund has a very different look to many of its competitors. There's none of the railways, car makers, banks you typically find in a Japanese equity fund occupying the largest positions. That's actually true for, for both of these funds. Uh, instead, you've got 7% position in Obic software and computer solutions business uh, for sort of middle and small enterprises in Japan. It's also got 4% stake in Wellsia, which runs pharmacies. Um, and it's got, in general, big overweights to consumer staples and IT. I think they're both compelling options you should look at if you're you know, increasing active allocation. Interesting. Uh, Frank, when, when I heard you were going to talk about Japan uh, this week, I had a quick look at Hideo Shizumi, who, you know, those of us who have been around CityWell for 10 years or more remember, he, he was shooting the lights out, then he had underperformance. And he's back at AA and he's, he's had ratings continuously, you know, so 
what's what's he's he's very durable, isn't he? He still keeps going, and he's um, eight out of eighty three over the last three years. Yeah, he's very durable. But he, he did have for a long time. He's either up very up or very down, but he's been very consistent for the past few years. I think it might actually be the top fund over ten years in the, in the whole category. He's a he's a deep value manager, which you might think, oh, value, don't want to touch that. But in Japan, it's it's been a slightly different dynamic in that there has been a it's a value market as an overall because fund allocated to uh, Hideo uh, Legmason Japan value. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just looking at his top over the last five years, one out of 104, but standard deviation and max drawdown is is horrible. He's absolutely <laughs> rock bottom on standard deviation and 90th out of 104 on drawdown. So, uh, as ever, you need a strong stomach for, for someone like his style. Angus? It's interesting, Frank, talking about the, the it's almost a cultural issue there, isn't there, of how people see uh, Japanese managers. One of the things that European investors always used to look for was uh, a Japanese manager with, with on-the-ground presence. And, and I was interested to hear you talking about Richard Kay there, because Comgess, obviously, uh, Paris-based firm. Richard Kay, I think he's lived in Japan for 20 years. So uh, obviously, um, obviously understands the economy and understands companies. But his previous co-manager, I think, on that fund was actually based in Paris. So quite an interesting mix, really, of international expertise and local presence. And I'm just curious to see how things pan out in terms of virtual and the way everybody using Zoom and WebEx for their meetings is affecting the way they do their due diligence and uh, that, that compression of time and distance that we keep hearing about. I wonder if that will change investors' attitudes to, to, for example, Japan managers. If you don't have to get on a plane and spend all the time going to visit the manager, you can do more of your, more of your research virtually. Is that going to change what people expect from uh, a, a, not just a Japanese manager, but any manager in a, in a more far-flung part of the world? Are we going to see more of a uh, an international cross fertilization. I think that would be interesting to watch. Cool. Uh, just a one more thing on the Japan. Um, what might shake up the markets actually is another development in the issue of diversity in the boardroom. So this, uh, well, the weekend ending June the third, um, there's the AGMs in Japan, um, and the likes of Goldman Sachs and Legal in General are planning to vote against all Topics 100 companies without female representation. Now, that's huge. Um, so, you know, trying, that's a cultural thing. It's trying to change the boards. But if they do vote against the leadership of these, you know, of the companies in the, in the Topics 100, you know, there's going to have to be some kind of shift or strategy changes because, you know, at the end of the day, the managers are going to be demanding some kind of active ownership, you know, having some diversity on that board. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how that pans out and um, how these investment management companies have voted with these topics, 100 companies. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a broader issue there as well, isn't there? Just active ownership generally. Presumably it doesn't sort of stop with voting on topics companies. If managers are going to take that kind of approach more generally, people have been calling for it for a long time. Uh, it would be interesting to see uh, if that gathers pace. Yeah. Did BlackRock come out and say they're going to be more active in the future, particularly on uh, ESG issues? Hmm. 7.4 trillion of assets, you know, when they're wading in, I think maybe there is a change going, going on in terms of activism. Mm. Well, I think it's also your, your well-made point, Frank, about the central banks saying they're going to buy corporate bonds 
the statement has as much effect sometimes as the action. And maybe there's something similar here. The fact that BlackRock says it's going to take that approach influences the way companies behave. And so then they don't need to be as aggressive as perhaps yeah. they might otherwise have had to be. Yeah, there was a good interview with, uh, with Mike Fox of Royal London, who's been the best sustainable fund manager around for years and years and years. And he said that what's happened you know, lately has moved ESG forward more in 10 weeks than it has in the last 10 years. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a sign that things are changing more quickly, uh, which is pretty much what you can say about everything at the moment. Probably a good point to wrap up on because we can delve into that one another time. So thank you, Nisha. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Angus. Thank you to everybody who's listening. Uh, it's a new edition of the Ratings Radar newsletter out. Uh, email us at ratingsradar at cityr.co.uk if you haven't got a copy but would like one. And we'll be back in a week's time with another edition of this podcast. Until then, bye-bye from us all. <laughs>